I would like also personally to thank all of you for the many ways that you plant seed in our children. They know not how it grows or even from whence it comes, yet at some age it will ripen and bear fruit, and that is because of the love and the teaching that so many of you provide them. One of my favorite quotes about faith comes from Horace Bushnell, and it goes, we receive our faith from the the aroma of the garments that nurture us. When I think about that, it is those who hold us close that give us their love and their faith. Thank you for all you at Riverside do for our children. This morning, we have heard mostly the first parable about scattering seed upon the ground as the landowner slept and lived and had no idea how it grew. The second parable of that dictich of parables comes to us from Mark's gospel as well, chapter 4, verses 30 through 32. May God open up to us an understanding of this word so that it may in fact bear fruit. Jesus also said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God or what parable will we use for it? It is like a mustard seed, which when sown upon the garden ground is the smallest of all the seeds of the earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes the greatest of all shrubs and puts forth large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. This is the word of the Lord. Mark says that Jesus did not speak unless it was in or with a parable. And the reason that Jesus liked to use parables is because of the way they disrupt the way we see the world. They are parabola, that is to say, a truth that runs alongside our truth. And when we connect to that other truth, it automatically causes in us a shift of perception that didactic teaching cannot. May it be so today. I have a cousin who lives in the cleanest, most ordered house you can imagine. And it is symbolized by his closet. Every bit as large as his bedroom, when you walk in, the first thing you notice are the shoes that are perfectly lined up according to color, brown, black, white, so forth. And even the browns are split up between loafers and tie shoes. And even the tie shoes are split up between wingtips and blukers. Each one in a process of formality. The shirts, as you can imagine, the button-down collar shirts, white over on one side of the hanger, then the white non-button-down collar shirts, then the blue button-down, non-button-down, then the stripes, then the checks, all perfectly lined up accordingly. That doesn't even count the many sports shirts and golf shirts that he has. Everyone perfectly placed according to the definition that he has given it. Nothing ever out of place, not a spot of dust anywhere. One night while having dinner there, I excused myself and snuck upstairs to his bedroom and rearranged his shoes. 
and I put some golf shirts over in the white shirt rack and some blue shirts with the check shirts and just basically brought disorder and chaos to his, what I thought, obsessive way of keeping his closet. He called me the next day and he was not amused. I said, I just wanted to stir things up a little. Look, he said, everything in my life is always stirred up. The world is always in chaos and disorder. This is the one little place in my life where I can finally have things put in the right place in order. I don't want anybody messing with it. I understand, I said. We can understand this need for order to a point. Order and separation are needed to keep things intact and running smoothly. I was in the hospital last week, last Monday, visiting someone, and when I got uh, uh, off the elevator, there were two women there that I overheard say before the door closed, he looks just like that horse trainer for that, that horse that just won the triple crown. They weren't the first to notice the resemblance. I asked Anita about that, and she goes, no, it's just the hair. I immediately went out and got a haircut. Not that I didn't want to be associated with him, but things do need some order. You don't mix everything together. I learned that the hard way in doing laundry when I put last year's vacation Bible school shirt, which was tie-dyed, in with all of my white garments. They are now pink. Order is important in the way you do things. When things get out of place, chaos ensues, disorder But there's a line, I think, there's a line between that complete obsessive compulsiveness of my cousin's closet and that complete anarchy of mine. What is it? We Presbyterians claim to know that. We say that we do things decently and in order, and we do. We take very seriously about how we do process, step-by-step ordering of things. In fact, the way that the, the, the book that governs us in our process is called our book of order. And in fact, this bulletin on Sunday is really called an order of worship. We like order. It helps us keep things in Place. It helps keep away the chaos and the anarchy. Order is important. But there is nothing as Presbyterians and our need for order compared to the need of Israel and their sense of order as an ancient culture who understood themselves as being chosen by God. Holy, which means set apart, separated. And their ritualistic and cultural need for everything to be exactly in its right place. And for every single 
level of order to be clearly understood. That's what the priests did. Mostly the priest's job was to make sure that everything kept its order. And when things got out of order, for instance, you might have a blemish on your skin, that was a disorder. You were then set outside of community until your blemish had disappeared and you had washed ritualistically. There are whole sections in the book of Leviticus that point to this, that deal with this, called the holiness or purity codes from chapters 16 through 24. Read it sometimes. You might find that we are nothing in our obsessiveness compared to what they were. Everything had its place according to what they understood as the presumed laws of God. There's a law in Leviticus 19.19 that says, You shall keep my statutes. You shall not let your cattle breed with a different kind. You shall not sow your field with two kinds of seed. You shall not wear a garment made of two kinds of stuff, linen and wool. You shall not plow with an ox and ass together. That was order. And you don't... You don't break those separations. You, you, don't, you, you don't merge two things that are different. They understood this. I mean, biologically, as well as they knew, it made sense. Sometimes when, when you don't keep order, you tend to get sick. You eat food that might be contaminated. Uh, there was that basic fear of contamination all through their whole understanding of their existence, not only from germs, but also from other people, which grew then into the theological understanding of why they were so obsessed with order, because God had ordered creation out of chaos. Read it. Genesis 1, God looks down on chaos, this giant whirlwind of chaos, and begins to order it distinctly by separating the parts, separating light from dark, land from the ocean, fish from bird, from animal, from human. And in that separation, they understood that was where order came from, keeping things clearly ordered and separated. So theologically, for the Hebrew people, they were living out that God-creativeness by ordering their world, too. And when things got out of order, that's when things tragically happened. You can see where this all ends up. This sort of obsessive religious ritual to keep things ordered always ends up with some totalitarian ruler or group of rulers demanding that you live exactly by the code or you are out. Or if something happens that upsets that order, you are out. That the, the sense of righteousness and holiness and purity becomes smaller and smaller according to the perfection of being able to do things perfectly and in order. Now, Things aren't quite so clearly defined in our world. Things aren't quite so easily ordered. They have learned, for instance, and this might be too much information, and I won't give you all of it, 
how important bacteria is for our digestive system. And for those of us who don't like germs, this seems to be out of order. But in fact, there are billions of germs that are necessary to make us work. And if the whole world came to an end, it would not end the bacteria. That doesn't sound like order to me. Scientists have learned, for instance, instead of the Newtonian atomistic understanding of atoms and neutrons and electrons and protons and everything fitting together and everything working according to empirical evidence that can be verified, scientists are starting to say, you know what, there may be a truth that cannot empirically be verified. And the new order of science says that there is this uncertainty principle about us that we cannot completely determine the exact location of a beam of light or a particle of light depending on how we observe it. And there's this theory called chaos theory that says things are not always so atomistically separated and differentiated, but in fact connected in a way that when a butterfly flaps its wings in Tokyo, it affects the weather in New York City. It's called chaos theory. And now they're starting to see that the very essence and energy of the order of the universe comes from the very place where there is disorder, that what keeps us, in fact, together are the most disordered uh, theories imaginable, black matter and black holes, which, as they understand it, represent complete disorder. Now, this is a lot, I know, to begin with our parable about the mustard seed. But Jesus, I think, understood this on some level, certainly not biologically, but understood that that is, in fact, the way the world works, why he used parables to knock us off our ordered perches. He turned upside down the cultural and religious ways of separation and order the established ways of keeping everything exactly in its place. I mean, the prodigal son story is about the son who leaves home stealing his father's inheritance, basically, and comes back and gets a party. That's not the way things are ordered. And the oldest son is even invited to come still, yet he doesn't show up. Not the way things are. Jesus' agricultural uh, parables about there was a sower who threw seed. Well, he threw it all over the place. He threw it on rocky ground, and he threw it on, on, on dry ground, and he threw it on thorny ground, and he threw it on fertile ground. Completely disordered. Everyone knows farmers don't do that. And this morning's parable about the mustard seed. To what shall I compare the kingdom of God? He said, it is like a sower who threw mustard seed, the smallest seed of all, along the garden ground to see it grow up into a mighty shrub under which all the birds took refuge, found shelter and shade. We think, oh, that's a cool little parable. Sure, you know, the mustard seed, it's the smallest of all, and our faith is like a mustard that just needs to be that small and we can move mountains. That's what it's about, but actually no. Because you see, 
for a farmer in Jesus' day, you don't throw mustard seed anywhere near your garden because it was like ragweed. It propagated all over the place and it took over. There were patches put aside specifically for the mustard seed. Every farmer knew that. You don't just throw it out because then it will strangle everything else and all you have is a giant garden of mustard shrubs. They'll take over. And so when Jesus says it is like a man who threw the seed in the garden, immediately we should say, that's not how I understand order. And then he goes on to say, unlike the giant, magnificent cedars of Lebanon, which is held up as being the ultimate sense of the power of God and the kingdom of God, it will grow up into a mighty shrub. A shrub, not a tree. Well, Luke uses tree, but Mark was the first gospel written, and he likes shrub. And Jesus says this is like the kingdom of God. It undermines all our understandings about how the world works and about how we keep things particularly separated and in their place. It throws that upside down and says and threatens all our rules and regulations about what is pure and impure, holy and unholy, righteous and unrighteous. And in turning it upside down, it turns out to be the greatest shrub in the garden and offers shelter and shade to all the birds in the air. The smallest seed, the most insignificant of things, becomes the largest provider of shelter. When Jesus said, let the children come unto me, he was not talking about the children as we know them and understand and relate to them today. In those days, children were in fact to be not seen nor heard. They were simply economic variables that you added to your family because they would eventually work and themselves have children. It turned upside down their understanding. Now, theologically, Israel understood order because God had called them to be a separate, set-apart people not contaminated by the Canaanites and all the other gods and God systems and cults and ways of doing things, but to have their separate way of doing it. And Jesus walks along with his parable and turns that whole understanding upside down by not only with this truth in the parable, but he then starts messing around and spending time with insignificant people, the least and the last and the lost and the lepers and even the dead, you don't touch the dead. That is a, an out of order. It, it results in chaos. Yet there is Jesus. And so like this parable, in the most insignificant, out of order way, Jesus lived his life and says to us, guess what? That's where you find the kingdom of God. Everyone knows that crows do not like water. While walking along the beach recently, I came across two crows that were picking like a sandpiper, either sand fleas or some sort of creature up out of the sand. 
waiting in the water. And every time a ripple or a small wave would come, they would hop up and hop over the wave like LeBron James might jump over his opponents for a dunk. They would resume their pecking back into the sand like a, sand, like a, a, a sandpiper. Everyone knows that crows shouldn't be eating bugs and creatures out of the sand like sandpipers. It's not decent or in order. Such is the kingdom of God, for it is like a mustard seed, and it is also like two crows who decided that they were going to become like sandpipers And when they finished digging in the sand, their bellies were full. May those who have ears hear.